Whenever God desires a relationship with His people, He structures a covenant. The covenant sets out the terms of the relationship. When God selected Abraham to father His people, He made a covenant with Abraham. We'll talk about it a little later. When He brought the Hebrews out of Egypt and wanted to make them His people, again, God established a covenant. When He chose David out of the tribes of Israel to be the heir to rule over Israel, God again made a covenant with David. And now Jeremiah is writing in the darkest days of the nation's history. Judgment is on the doorstep. The Jews had failed to live up to the previous covenants. So God decides to make a new covenant. You see, God is relentless in His desire to have relationship with people. He's relentless. He doesn't give up. And He continues to offer that relationship And he establishes a once and for all new covenant that again we'll study tonight. Chapter 32 begins. The word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord in the tenth year of Zedekiah, king of Judah, which was the eighteenth year of Nebuchadnezzar. The king Zedekiah, he ruled Jerusalem for eleven years. And the last eighteen months of his reign, the city was under siege. The Babylonians were camped outside. They were preparing to attack, preparing to storm the city. This chapter unfolds in the 10th year. The city's hunkered down behind these walls trying to survive. Verse 2 tells us, For then the king of Babylon's army besieged Jerusalem, and Jeremiah the prophet was shut up in the court of the prison, which was in the king, which was in the king of Judah's house. And so the Babylonian army is camped outside, Jeremiah's under house arrest. Things are desperate in Jerusalem. For Zedekiah, king of Judah, had shut him up, saying, Why do you prophesy and say, Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will give this city into the hand of the king of Babylon, and he shall take it. And Zedekiah, king of Judah, shall not escape from the hand of the Chaldeans, but shall surely be delivered into the hand of the king of Babylon, and shall speak with him face to face, And see him eye to eye. Then he shall lead Zedekiah to Babylon. And there he shall be until I visit him, says the Lord. Though you fight with the Chaldeans, you shall not succeed. And so Zedekiah comes pouting to Jeremiah. And he says, why don't you say anything nice about me? You know, why are you always judging against me? Jeremiah had refused to tell the king what he wanted to hear. A lot of people today, they only want to hear what they want to hear. They don't want to hear the truth. Jeremiah says, Zedekiah, you're on the wrong side of this conflict. You need to surrender to the Babylonians, not resist them. And Jeremiah said, the word of the Lord came to me saying, Behold, Hanamiel, the son of Shalom, your uncle will come to you saying, By my field, which is in Anathoth, for the right of redemption is yours to buy it. Jeremiah is going to get a real estate offer from his cousin. His cousin has some nice Jerusalem investment property that he would like for Jeremiah to buy. Then Hanamiel, my uncle's son, came to me in the court of the prison, according to the word of the Lord, and said to me, Please buy my field that is in Anathoth, which is in the country of Benjamin. For the right of inheritance is yours, and the redemption yours. Buy it for yourself. 
Then I knew that this was the word of the Lord. And I like that, for apparently the first time God spoke to Jeremiah, he wasn't so sure that it was the Lord speaking to him. And that kind of encourages me. Because sometimes I don't really know for sure whether it's the Lord or not the Lord until it gets confirmed. And this is what happened to Jeremiah. The moral of the story, we really do walk by faith. Now remember, in Israel, no one actually owned land. In Leviticus chapter 25, verse 23, the Lord had said, The land shall not be sold permanently, for the land is mine. In Israel, all the property belonged to God. There was no such thing as fee simple ownership. All the land was God's. But God divided it among His people. And each of the twelve tribes received an allocation of land. And it was God's intention for the land to remain the possession of the family to whom it had originally been given. This is why God set out rules for redemption. For if an Israeli got into a financial bind and had to sell some of his property, then a near relative had the right to redeem or to buy back that land and keep it in the family. Well, here Jeremiah's cousin is appealing to him as a near relative to do his duty, to purchase this land and to keep it in the family. There was one problem. Anathoth was a northern suburb of Jerusalem. At that very moment, the field that Jeremiah is being asked to buy, the field that's on this market, real estate market, is hosting a camp of Babylonian soldiers, no less. I mean, if Jeremiah buys this field, he's got no hope of ever occupying it. The enemy, the enemy armies camped on this field. Why would he waste his money and purchase this property? Verse 9, so I bought the field. <laughs> he obeyed God. God had told him ahead of time that he was going to be offered this field and he was to purchase it. And so I bought the field from Hanamiel, the son of my uncle who was in Anathoth, and weighed out to him the money, 17 shekels of silver. And I signed the deed and sealed it, took witnesses, and weighed the money on the scales. In other words, he made it all legal. And so I took the purchase deed, both that which was sealed according to the law and custom, and that which was open, and I gave the purchase deed to Baruch, the son of Neriah, son of Masiah, in the presence of Hanamiel, my uncle's son, and in the presence of the witnesses, who signed the purchase deed before all the Jews who sat in the court of the prison. This was made official, and it was also made very public. Everyone knew what had happened. They knew about this transaction, and as we'll see, that becomes important later. Then I charged Baruch before them, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Take these deeds, purchase this, both this purchase deed which is sealed and this deed which is open, and put them in an earthen vessel that they may last many days. The sealed deed was the official copy, while the open scroll was sort of the working deed. It set out the terms that both parties had agreed to meet. And both scrolls were archived. They were put away. They were put in a clay jar for preservation. You know, it's interesting. The famous Dead Sea Scrolls, you've heard of them. They were kept in similar vessels, and they survived for 2,000 years. The arid climate com uh, 
compounded with the clay vessels, does a good job of archiving the ancient documents. But here's the point God was making. He says, For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Houses and fields and vineyards shall be possessed again in this land. See, God had commanded Jeremiah to make such a ridiculous investment to prove to the people of Jerusalem that Israel would return to the land and they would reclaim what was theirs. Jeremiah kept this deed. And 70 years later, his heirs returned and they took possession of this field in Anathoth. It was a fulfillment of God's word to the people that they would not be forsaken forever. They would be punished for 70 years. They would be sent into exile, but they would return and occupy the land again. And this story also provides the backdrop for Revelation chapter 5. For there we see the title deed of the universe. And the question is asked, who is worthy to open this deed and to take possession? And of course, John saw Jesus, the lamb who had been slain, the lion of the tribe of Judah. He saw that Jesus Christ was the only one worthy to open the scroll and to take possession of the deed. And one day, Jesus will. He'll take possession. He'll return and he'll take possession of this earth once more what is rightfully His. Verse 16. Now when I had delivered the purchase deed to Baruch, the son of Neriah, I prayed to the Lord, saying, Ah, Lord God, behold, you have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and outstretched arm. There is nothing too hard for you. Isn't that a great way to open your prayer? To remind yourself that there's nothing too hard for God. That's getting your, your eyes focused on the Lord. That's praying to a God who can deliver. Make sure that you focus on the God to whom you're praying. Make sure you're not just uh, you know, verbalizing your own uh, insecurities or your own fears or your own worries. Make sure you know who the God it is that you're praying to. How it will change your prayers. C.S. Lewis once said, The prayer that should precede all other prayers is this, Lord, let it be the real me who prays, and let it be the real you that I pray to. Well, Jeremiah continues, verse 18. You show loving kindness to thousands and repay the iniquity of the fathers into the bosom of their children after them. The great, the mighty God, whose name is the Lord of hosts, you are great in counsel and mighty in work, for your eyes are open to all the ways of the sons of men to give everyone according to his ways and according to the fruit of his doings. You have set signs and wonders in the land of Egypt to this day and in Israel and among other men, and you have made yourself a name as it is this day. You have brought your people Israel out of the land of Egypt with signs and wonders, with a strong hand and an outstretched arm, and with great terror, you have given them this land of which you swore to their fathers to give them, a land flowing with milk and honey. And they came in and took possession of it, but they have not obeyed your voice or walked in your law. They have done nothing of all that you commanded them to do. Therefore, you have caused all this calamity to come upon them. The Jews had exited Egypt. They had entered the land. But they had failed to abide there and to take full possession of the land. 
They had compromised with the pagan nations around them. And what was true of Israel can also be true of Christians. We give our lives to Jesus. We escape the lust of this world. But we don't abide in Christ. We don't really take advantage of the blessings that God has given us. And this too can bring calamity on ourselves. Jeremiah intensifies his prayer in verse 24. He says, look, the siege mounds. They have come to the city to take it. And the city has been given into the hand of the Chaldeans who fight against it. Because of the sword and famine and pestilence, what you have spoken has happened. There you see it. Now, siege mounds were these inclines that were built up against the walls of an ancient city that would allow the invading army to rush up to the top of the walls and then pour over the wall into the city. And Jeremiah could look outside the walls of Jerusalem. And he could see that the Babylonians were building these siege mounds. They would soon storm into the city. He knew that the time was just about up for Jerusalem. Verse 25. And you have said to me, O Lord God, buy the field for money and take witnesses. Yet the city has been given into the hand of the Chaldeans. And again, Jeremiah was confused about all this that the Lord had commanded him. He'd been obedient, but purchasing the field was so illogical. It just didn't make sense. Why had God asked him to purchase a worthless parcel? You know, perhaps the toughest test of faith for anyone, for any Christian, is to trust God even when His ways seem irrational or contradictory. Imagine Abraham. Isaac was the promised son. Abraham and Sarah had waited on Isaac for 25 years. He finally arrives, miraculously. Two old people have a son. And yet God tells Abraham to take Isaac and offer him as a sacrifice. Wait a minute, God, how can that be? I mean, God had told Abraham that he would have many descendants, that he would be the father of many nations. And now he's supposed to kill the seed from which those nations will grow, the one son who will sire that family and give him those descendants? It just seemed nuts. And what God is telling Jeremiah here is just as illogical. Why spend my money? Why waste my resources? This is so inefficient. And this is the mistake that we sometimes make. We judge the value of things based on efficiency and results. This is our Western American know-how kind of mentality. We get involved in things only when it seems to be worth our time, only when we can see the merit of what our efforts are going to accomplish. But what's your response when the rate of return on what God has asked you to do is meager? Or when you don't understand why He's asked you to do what He's asked you to do? Jeremiah had spent his hard-earned cash on something that was merely symbolic. You know, we learn here that our job is not to obey God only when it seems efficient. Only when we understand all the ins and outs. No, we need to obey Him regardless, just when He asks us. Now, verse 26 tells us, Then the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah, saying, Behold, I am the Lord, the God of all flesh. Is there anything too hard for me? You recognize that verbiage? 
God responds to Jeremiah with the very words that Jeremiah has uttered to God. He repeats what he had prayed earlier. In verse 17, Jeremiah prayed, There is nothing too hard for you. And now God asks him if he really believes it. Is there anything too hard for me, Jeremiah? See, it's one thing to say you believe. But do you really? When the money's coming out of your wallet, you know, when what God asks you to do seems crazy, will you believe then? There comes a time in every one of our lives when God calls our bluff. When God really wants to know, are we believing or are we just bluffing? In verse 29, the Lord explains himself. Therefore, thus says the Lord, Behold, I will give this city into the hand of the Chaldeans, into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and he shall take it. And the Chaldeans who fight against this city shall come and set fire to this city and burn it. But the houses on whose roofs they have offered incense to Baal and poured out drink offerings to other gods to provoke me to anger. God is going to burn the city. It's interesting in Deuteronomy 13 verse 16, the law commanded that when a city falls into idolatry, you are to set fire to the city and burn it to the ground. Here God is enforcing his own law on the city of Jerusalem. He says, Because the children of Israel and the children of Judah have done only evil before me from their youth, for the children of Israel have provoked me only to anger with the work of their hands, says the Lord. And I was, I've been dealing with these people for a long, long time. They've been rebellious from their youth. They haven't learned. I've tried to teach them. I've been patient with them. For this city has been to me a provocation of my anger and my fury from the day that they built it, even to this day. So I will remove it from before my face because of all the evil of the children of Israel and the children of Judah, which they have done to provoke me to anger. They, their kings, their princes, their priests, their prophets, the men of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and they have turned to me the back and not the face. Don't turn your back on God. Turn your face toward God. Don't turn your back on Him. Though I taught them, rising up early and teaching them. In other words, I was relentless. I cared for them. I loved them. I, was, I wasn't lazy. I was diligent in teaching them. Yet they have not listened to receive instruction. But they set their abominations in the house which is called by my name to defile it. And this was kind of the final straw. The Jews gave no thought to offending God. To the point to where they erected their idols right in the holy of holies within the temple. In the very place where God's presence was to dwell. Right in the heart of God's house they erected their idols. It was a slap in God's face. Guys, we revel in God's patience. We enjoy God's kindness. We trust in God's grace, and rightly so. God is a loving God. He is a wonderful God. He's a gracious God. But God has feelings too. God is also a person. And if you betray Him constantly, if you hurt Him deeply, if you provoke Him to anger, 
I mean, he's a person too. He has feelings. Eventually, you, you provoke his judgment. And God will put down the rebellion. And he'll punish the disobedience. I, I have a favorite author. Her name is Lois Cheney. She's written a book called God is No Fool. And, and I want to read this to you. It's an excerpt from her book, but it, but it says what I'd like to say. She says it so well. They say that God has infinite patience, and that is a great comfort. They say God is always there, and that is a deep satisfaction. They say that God will always take you back, and I get lazy in that certitude. They say that God never gives up, and I count on that. They say you can go away for years and years, and He'll be there waiting when you come back. They say you can make mistake after mistake, and God will always forgive and forget. They say lots of things, these people who never read the Old Testament. There comes a time, a definite for sure time, when God turns around. I don't believe God shed His skin when Christ brought in the New Testament. Christ showed us a new side of God, and it is truly wonderful. But He didn't change God. God remains forever and ever and that God is no fool. He's not. You can push His patience. You can push Him to a point where he, he has to bring judgment. And that's what Judah had done. In verse 35, God continues with what has offended Him. And they built the high places of Baal, which are in the valley of the son of Hinnom, to pass to cause their sons and their daughters to pass through the fire to Molech, which I did not command, nor did it come into my mind that they should do this abomination to cause Judah to sin. There are a lot of things that God could have brought up that they had done, but of the things that infuriated him, one was the child sacrifices that had been conducted in the valley, the valley of Hinnom, just outside the gates of Jerusalem. It was abhorrent to God that they would offer up their children they would put their children in the fire in worship of this idol Molech. And yet, do we not do the same thing? This is, should tell you how God feels about abortion. That when we serve the God of hedonism, when we serve the God of pleasure, and we seek to rectify our mistakes and sacrifice our own children, this is abhorrent to God. This is a sin before God, an abomination before God. And of all the things he could have brought up about Judah to mention, he brings up the sacrificing of their children. I think that should tell us a lot about how God feels about abortion. Now therefore, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, concerning this city of which you say, it shall be delivered into the hand of the king of Babylon by the sword, by the famine, and by the pestilence. Behold, I will gather them out of all countries, where I have driven them in my anger, in my fury, and in my great wrath. I will bring them back to this place, and I will cause them to dwell safely. Now, God isn't angry forever. Understand this. Weeping may endure for a night, but joy comes in the morning. Here he promises to retrieve his people. He will judge them, yes, but then he will retrieve them and forgive them, and bring them back. And he'll bring them back out of all countries, he says. This isn't just the Jews returning from Babylon. This all countries refers prophetically to the final migration of Jews to Israel at the return of Christ. 
And then verse 38 tells us, Then shall be my people, or they shall be my people, and I will be their God. Then I will give them one heart and one way, that they may fear me forever, for the good of them and their children after them. And I will make an everlasting covenant with them, that I will not turn away from doing them good, but I will put my fear in their hearts so that they will not depart from me. Yes, I will rejoice over them to do them good, and I will assuredly plant them in this land with all my heart and with all my soul. And notice what God considers to be the key to their consistent loyalty. What is He going to put in their hearts to keep them from falling back into these same sinful patterns? He says, the fear of me. The fear of God. It's a healthy fear of God that keeps us from sin, that, that helps us to be reverent to God, that creates an obedient spirit within us. It's a healthy fear of God, that He's not a God to be trifled with. Yes, He's a God that loves us. Yes, He's a merciful God. But we should never take advantage of that mercy and trifle with His love. For thus says the Lord, Just as I have brought all this great calamity on this people, so I will bring on them all the good that I have promised them. And fields will be bought in this land of which you say it is desolate, without man or beast. It has been given into the hand of the Chaldeans. Men will buy fields for money, sign deeds and seal them, and take witnesses in the land of Benjamin, in the places around Jerusalem, in the cities of Judah, in the cities of the mountains, in the cities of the lowland, and in the cities of the south. For I will cause their captives to return, says the Lord. God is assuring Jeremiah that one day his field will be prime real estate. He just needs to believe. And he needs to trust the Lord. Well, chapter 33. Moreover, the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah a second time, while he was still shut up in the court of the prison, saying, Thus says the Lord who made it, the Lord who formed it, to establish it. The Lord is his name. Call to me, and I will answer you. And show you great and mighty things which you do not know. Jeremiah had asked God, why buy the land? God, what are you doing? And here God is about to show him. And I love God's promise, not just to Jeremiah, but to all of us. Call to me, and I will show you great and mighty things which you do not know. Hey, the next time you pick up your Bible to read the scriptures, I want you to claim that promise. I want you to expect God to show you things. For God is a God who loves to reveal. God is a teacher at heart. And we're all His students. And we can expect God to show us great and mighty things. Verse 4. For thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, concerning the houses of this city and the houses of the kings of Judah, which have been pulled down to fortify against the siege mounds and the sword, they come to fight with the Chaldeans, but only to fill their places with the dead bodies of men whom I will slay in my anger and my fury, all for whose wickedness I have hidden my face from this city. Behold, I will bring it health and healing. I will heal them and reveal to them the abundance of peace and truth. I will cause the captives of Judah and the captives of Israel to return and will rebuild those places as at the first. 
I will cleanse them from all their iniquity by which they have sinned against me. And I will pardon all their iniquities by which they have sinned and by which they have transgressed against me. Then it shall be to me a name of joy, a praise, and an honor above all nations of the earth, who shall hear all the good that I do to them. They shall fear and tremble for all the goodness and all the prosperity that I provide for it. Thus says the Lord, Again, there shall be heard in this place of which you say it is desolate without man or without beast, in the cities of Judah, in the streets of Jerusalem that are desolate, without man and without inhabitant and without beast. You'll hear the voice of joy and the voice of gladness, the voice of the bridegroom and the voice of the bride, the voice of those who will say, Praise the Lord of hosts, for the Lord is good, for His mercy endures forever. And of those who will bring the sacrifice of praise into the house of the Lord, for I will cause the captives of the land to return as at the first, says the Lord. This will occur in Jerusalem when Jesus reigns. A city that was abandoned and had become desolate will come to life. The world trembled at God's judgment on Jerusalem, but they will tremble again, not at His judgment, but at His blessings on this very same city. The nations will tremble for all God's goodness toward His people. And notice sacrifices will return to Jerusalem. But the emphasis here is not on blood sacrifices. When Jesus returns, Ezekiel 40 indicates that there may be some symbolic animal sacrifices, but sacrifice for atonement ended 2,000 years ago at the cross. When Jesus returns to a rebuilt temple, it will be filled with sacrifices of praise. God will pardon Israel. He'll make her glad. And Israel will be thankful and will sing His praise. And thus says the Lord of hosts, In this place which is desolate, without man and without beast, and in all its cities, there shall again be a dwelling place of shepherds causing their flocks to lie down. In the cities of the mountains, in the cities of the lowland, in the cities of the south, in the land of Benjamin, in the places around Jerusalem, and in the cities of Judah, the flock shall again pass under the hands of him who counts them, says the Lord. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, that I will perform that good thing which I have promised to the house of Israel and to the house of Judah. In those days and at that time, I will cause to grow up to David a branch of righteousness. He shall execute judgment and righteousness in the earth. In those days, Judah will be saved and Jerusalem will dwell safely. Notice. And this is the name by which she will be called the Lord our righteousness. Now the return of the Jews and the blessing that Jeremiah predicts is going to be initiated by a son of David, a descendant from David's family tree. Here he's called a branch of righteousness. He's a branch from David's family tree. Of course, this son of David is identified in the New Testament as Jesus Christ, Jesus the Messiah. For it is Jesus who will one day solve the world's political problems. Look at what he does in, this, in just this one passage. We're told he judges the earth, he brings salvation to Judah, he creates safety for Jerusalem. How's that for a day at the office? 
Isn't that the problem today? Safety for Jerusalem. This is what the world today fights over and bickers over and is in a quandary over. But when Jesus returns to earth, he'll solve these problems. And you have to love this name, the Lord our righteousness. Or in the Hebrew, Jehovah to Sidkenu, the Lord our righteousness. In, Ju- in uh, Matthew chapter 22, Jesus told a parable. He said that a king was hosting a marriage for his son. And he sent out invitations for people to come to the party. When the king saw a man in attendance who wasn't wearing the customary wedding garment, he told his servants, Bind him hand and foot, take him away, and cast him into outer darkness. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. It's kind of a sad way to end a happy party, wouldn't you say? What's not apparent from the story is that the wedding garments were always provided by the host in that culture. And thus to not wear the garment was an insult to the host. But the point Jesus was making is that righteousness in his kingdom isn't something you bring with you to the party. It isn't something that you earn and bring with you. No, righteousness is provided by the host. It's a gift that God gives to those who trust in His Son, Jesus. You can't work your own righteousness. You can't become right and pleasing to God on your own. Isaiah said that our righteousness is as filthy rags in the sight of God. No, righteousness is not something that you bring with you. It's something that the host of the party gives you when you get there, when you trust in His Son. Everyone in heaven will be there because they've put on His righteousness, not their own. This is the second time in in this uh, passage, or in in Jeremiah, that this special name appears, the Lord our righteousness. Back in chapter 23, verse 6, it was said of the Messiah. But notice in verse 16, it's not just the Messiah that goes by this name, it's a she and not a he that's called by this name. The bride apparently takes the name of the groom, the church, the name of Christ. We receive this name. We too are called a branch of righteousness. In Christ, we share not only His name, we share all that He has and all that He's accomplished. This is the miracle of being in Christ. He is our righteousness plus much, much more. And Jeremiah predicts that one day, Israel too will be called by this name. Judah also will be saved by God's grace. In verse 17, For thus says the Lord, David shall never lack a man to sit on the throne of the house of Israel. Well, if that's true, where is he today? There is no king sitting on the throne in Israel. Where is this man sitting on David's throne? And of course, this is the mystery of the kingdom of God. This is the mystery talked about in the New Testament. For right now, Messiah is sitting on a throne. It's just not an earthly throne. He's sitting on the throne in heaven. Jesus is at God's right hand, preparing to return and rule over planet earth. David will never lack a man, a descendant, to sit on the throne. We just don't see him today. He's sitting on heaven's throne. But soon Jesus will return and establish his throne on the earth. And David shall not just lack a man to sit on the throne, nor shall the priests. 
The Levites lack a man to offer burnt offerings before me, to kindle grain offerings, and to sacrifice continually. And what else is Jesus doing today? Well, according to Hebrews chapter 7, Jesus is interceding before God on behalf of you and me, behalf of his saints. In God's kingdom, Jesus serves a dual role. He is both king and priest. Today, he's before the Father praying for you, interceding for you, getting for you the help that you need. Are you seeking it? Are you open to it? Are you asking him for it? Verse 19, And the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah, saying, Thus says the Lord, If you can break my covenant with the day and my covenant with the night, so that there will not be day and night in their season, then my covenant may also be broken with David my servant, so that he shall not have a son to reign on his throne, and with the Levites, the priests, my ministers. As the host of heaven cannot be numbered, nor the sand of the sea measured, so will I multiply the descendants of David my servant and the Levites who minister to me. Now here, the Lord anticipates that there will be those who will come and who will teach that God is finished with the Jewish people. That they blew their chance, and now the blessings that were intended for Israel have been transferred to the church. And sadly, there are people today who teach this very thing. It's called replacement theology. And here, once and for all, God proves that it's false. For God tells us that the day and the night would cease their schedule before God turns His back on His people Israel. The sun will stop coming up before God turns His back on His people. God will never turn His back on Israel. He will be faithful to them until the end. Verse 23. Moreover, the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah saying, Have you not considered what these people have spoken, saying, The two families which the Lord has chosen, He has also cast them off. These are the people that want to say that God's through with Israel. The two families, Israel in the north, Judah in the south. God's thrown them off. He's done with them. Thus they have despised my people, as if they should no more be a nation before me. Thus says the Lord, If my covenant is not with day and night, and I have not appointed the ordinances of heaven and earth, then I will cast away the descendants of Jacob and David my servant, so that I will not take any of his descendants to be rulers over the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, for I will cause their captives to return, and I will have mercy on them. And what's true of God's promises to Israel is also true of his promises to you and me. The sun won't rise tomorrow before God fails to deliver on a single promise that he's made to us. Once there was a little girl. She told her friend that she had 12 pennies. But when her friend looked in her, into her hand, she noticed only six pennies. I thought you said you had 12 pennies. The little girl responded, I do. I have six in my hand, and my father told me that he'd give me six more, so I have 12. Obviously, the little girl believed that her father's word was as good as done. And this is what God wants us to do, to believe, to trust him. Our father deserves the same kind of confidence from us that his promises never fail. Chapter 34. The word which came to Jeremiah from the Lord 
when Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and all his army, all the kingdoms of the earth under his dominion, and all the people fought against Jerusalem and all its cities, saying, Now Jerusalem fell to the Babylonians on the fateful date of July the 18th, 586 B.C. It occurred at the end of this brutal 18-month-long siege. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Go and speak to Zedekiah, king of Judah, and tell him, Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will give this city into the hand of the king of Babylon, and he shall burn it with fire. He's giving him one more chance. And you shall not escape from his hand, but shall surely be taken and delivered into his hand. Your eyes shall see the eyes of the king of Babylon. He shall speak with you face to face, and you shall go to Babylon. This broke Jeremiah's heart to have to share this with the king of Judah. Jeremiah was a patriot. And there had been a time where if the king of Judah had repented, God would have spared the, the city. Problem is, is not now. They're past that point. And Jeremiah needs to cut his losses. He needs to minimize the loss of life, the destruction to the city. It's time, Zedekiah, to surrender to Nebuchadnezzar, to the king of the Babylonians. You know, it's like if you were driving 80 miles per hour down the street. And all of a sudden, a policeman, a Gwinnett County policeman, pulls in behind you. Lights are flashing. All of a sudden, you've got a choice to make. You can step on it. Try to outrun him. Start weaving around and weaving through the subdivisions and so forth. Or you can stop. You can get the ticket, accept your citation. Try to talk yourself out of it maybe, but just go ahead and suck it up. Okay, I'll pay. I'll pay the fine. Obviously, you're better off stopping, are you not? Run, and it's just putting off the inevitable. In fact, you're creating worse consequences for yourself. And this is what Zedekiah was doing by resisting the Babylonians. He was just putting off the inevitable and he was making matters worse. And that's why Jeremiah tells him, please, Zedekiah, enough is enough. Notice, too, the big deal that is made of Zedekiah having to meet Nebuchadnezzar face to face and eye to eye. It's like the second time we've read this. In 597 B.C., the Babylonians took the king at the time, who was Jeconiah, back to Babylon. And Nebuchadnezzar installed this Zedekiah in his place. His appointment of Zedekiah was a personal favor from Nebuchadnezzar. And yet now Zedekiah is rebelling against Nebuchadnezzar. Do you think Nebuchadnezzar is going to take that very kindly? I don't think so. This is a personal insult. Remember, this was the tyrant who stoked the fiery furnace and, and threatened anyone who refused to bow down and worship his golden image. They would get thrown into that fire. Imagine what he'll do to a traitor like Zedekiah. Verse 4. Yet hear the word of the Lord, O Zedekiah, king of Judah. Thus says the Lord concerning you, You shall not die by the sword, you shall die in peace, as in the ceremonies of your fathers, the former kings who were before you. So they shall burn incense for you and lament for you, saying, Alas, Lord, for I have pronounced the word, says the Lord. 
Zedekiah won't die in battle. He'll die of old age. He'll even have a funeral. What Jeremiah doesn't tell him is that he will die a blind man. 2 Kings chapter 25 tells us that Nebuchadnezzar is going to murder Zedekiah's sons before his very eyes. And then he's going to turn around and poke out his eyes with a hot iron so that the last sight that the man sees is the death of his own sons. That's why Jeremiah has made such a big deal about seeing Nebuchadnezzar face to face and eye to eye. Verse 6. Then Jeremiah the prophet spoke all these words to Zedekiah, king of Judah in Jerusalem. When the king of Babylon's army fought against Jerusalem and all the cities of Judah that were left against Lachish and Azekah, for only these fortified cities remained of the cities of Judah. Nebuchadnezzar's army had swept through Judah. Only two outposts remained outside the city of Jerusalem. Lachish was about 35 miles southwest of Jerusalem. Azekah was about 15 miles. Now it's interesting, in 1935, several dozen letters that were written on clay tablets were discovered in the excavations of ancient Lachish. And they were written by Hebrews at this exact time. And they discussed the Babylonian invasion that was going on around them. Today, the Lachish letters are on exhibit in the London Museum and then also in the Rockefeller Center there in Jerusalem. And they stand as one of the many confirmations of the Bible's historical reliability. Verse 8. This is the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord. After King Zedekiah had made a covenant with all the people who were at Jerusalem to proclaim liberty to them, that every man should set free his male and female slave, a Hebrew man or woman, that no one should keep a Jewish brother in bondage. Now when all the princes and all the people who had entered into the covenant heard that everyone should set free his male and female slaves, that no one should keep them in bondage anymore, they obeyed and let them go. Now the Bible gets criticized from time to time for its tolerance of slavery. But you need to understand that in Old Testament times, this was a benevolence. Under the law of Moses, if you got into debt and you couldn't satisfy your creditors, you could sell your freedom and you could work off your debts. But there were stipulations. It only lasted six years. And on the seventh year, all slaves were set free with a liberal stipend. Deuteronomy 15 states, When you send him away free from you, you shall not let him go away empty-handed. You shall supply him liberally from your flock, from your threshing floor, and from your wine press. From what the Lord has blessed you with, you shall give to him. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God redeemed you. The law of Moses even made stipulations for the slave who enjoyed living in his master's house so much that he wanted to stay there. That doesn't sound like cruel and inhumane treatment to me. Now today, in America, slavery is associated with hatred and racism and abuse. And it should rightly be disdained and abhorred. But you need to understand this was not the case in ancient Israel. It had nothing to do with race. When it was Jews becoming slaves to Jews. In fact, the system in Israel was governed by mercy, not meanness. And yet, just like anything else that man touches, the Old Testament institution of slavery has been abused. 
And this is what had happened in Jeremiah's day. They weren't observing the seventh-year liberation. They were keeping their slaves against their will. Meanness had taken over. But notice, now that they're in trouble, what happens? Zedekiah orders the release of the slaves. Everyone complies. This is an example of panic piety. People live as they please until they get in trouble. And then suddenly, man, we need to obey God. We're in trouble. It's also called jailhouse religion. <laughs> a guy lives on his own until he gets locked up, and then all of a sudden he turns to God. Of course, the question becomes, is he sincere? Or is he just trying to get out of a jam? Now understand, there's nothing wrong with panic piety. There's nothing wrong with jailhouse religion if it's truly genuine. If it grows into permanent piety. But if it's just an effort to manipulate circumstances for your own sake, God sees through it. Well, verse 11. But afterward they changed their minds and made the male and female slaves return whom they had set free and brought them into subjection as male and female slaves. Well, there you have it. They weren't very sincere, were they? On second thought, they said, well, we, we, we better keep these slaves. Let's disobey. What we're not told here but we will discover at the end of chapter 37 is that the Babylonians had suddenly packed up and had, had briefly aborted the siege of the city. The Egyptian Pharaoh had marched his army nearby and the Babylonians had left Jerusalem to confront the Egyptians. And when the Egyptians retreated, Nebuchadnezzar returned and that's when he defeated Jerusalem. And it was for this brief moment when the threat was lifted that their insincerity was revealed. And he said, ah, the trouble's gone. Let's just go back to our old ways. I hope your commitment to Christ isn't just a seasonal one. I hope it's not just a convenient commitment. We need to be all-weather Christians, not fair-weather Christians. We need to be devoted, not just some of the time, but all of the time. Well, verse 12 Therefore the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah from the Lord, saying, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I made a covenant with your fathers in the day that I brought them out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage, saying, At the end of seven years let every man set free his Hebrew brother who has been sold to him. And when he has served you six years, you shall let him go free from you. But your fathers did not obey me nor incline their ear. Then you recently turned and did what was right in my sight, every man proclaiming liberty to his neighbor. And you made a covenant before me in the house which is called by my name. Then you turned around and profaned my name. And every one of you brought back his male and female slaves, whom you had set at liberty at their pleasure, and brought them back into subjection to be your male and female slaves. Therefore, thus says the Lord, you have not obeyed me in proclaiming liberty every one to his brother and every one to his neighbor. Behold, I proclaim liberty to you, says the Lord, to the sword, to pestilence, and to famine. And I will deliver you to trouble among all the kingdoms of the earth, and I will give the men who have transgressed my covenant, who have not performed the words of the covenant which they had made before me, when they cut the calf in two and passed between the parts of it. The princes of Judah, the princes of Jerusalem, 
the eunuchs, the priests, and all the people of the land who pass between the parts of the calf. I will give them into the hand of their enemies and into the hand of those who seek their life. Their dead bodies shall be for meat for the birds of the heaven and the beasts of the earth. Now apparently in the midst of this crisis, the people of Jerusalem had made a deal with God. Freeing the slaves must have been one aspect of this covenant. And here's where we learn where the phrase cut a deal came from. You ever heard the phrase cut a deal? It's from the oriental practice that took place here. If you think buying a house and signing a contract is an ordeal, it's nothing compared to how the ancient Israelis entered into covenants and agreements. If you made a covenant with someone, you would cut a calf literally crossways, cross-section, right down the middle. And you would put one half of the calf on one side, one half of the calf on the other side. Then the two parties entering the agreement, they would lock arms and they would walk between the animal halves. It was a symbol of them becoming one. It was a symbol of unity in their commitment to the covenant. And here the Jews had committed to obey God. This reminds us of the covenant that God made with Abraham. This was one of the foundational covenants in all the scriptures. You remember, Abraham was commanded to slay a number of animals and arrange them in a quarter. Because of his faith in God, he was declared righteous. And God expected Abraham to ratify a deal. Abraham expected God to appear and to walk with him through the animal halves. Abraham prepared the quarter, the animal parts, and the quarter between them. And the scripture says he spent all day shooing away the vultures, waiting on God to come and walk with him through the animal parts. Well, finally, he dozed off under a nearby tree. And that's when all of a sudden he saw, he saw a burning torch and a smoking furnace, a censer of smoke and a torch that was on fire. The fire and the cloud. If you remember what God, how God's presence was manifested in the wilderness, a fire by day, day and a cloud by night, a cloud by day and a fire by night. But God appeared in the form of the fire and the cloud, and He walked by Himself through the animal parts. It wasn't God and Abraham confirming that covenant. It was God alone. And God was teaching Abraham and us that righteousness, that our salvation, that a right relationship with God is not a 50-50 proposition. It's not you do this and God will do this. No, God does all the work. All the work was accomplished on the cross of Jesus Christ and all He asked us to do is to look on Christ and to believe. This was all confirmed at the cross of Christ and through our faith. Well, back to Jeremiah verse 21. And I will give Zedekiah king of Judah and his princes into the hand of their enemies, into the hand of those who seek their life, and into the hand of the king of Babylon's army which has gone back from you. The army's retreat was not a deliverance. It was just a brief reprieve. God is going to give them into the hands of the Babylonians. For behold, I will command, says the Lord, and cause them to return to this city. They will fight against it and take it and burn it with fire. And I will make the cities of Judah a desolation without inhabitant. 